You are listening to the late Thursday catch-up of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What's happening? What's new? What's going on? I'm trying to be a little quiet this morning because Gina's still asleep. We are um, in a hotel on the East Coast in Boston today, which is uh, what marks day three of our, you know, two-week getaway, which I'm excited about. We're here hanging out with family, hanging out with friends, catching up with folks that we haven't seen in a while. Uh, It's a good time to take a break (laughs) because uh, everything is slowing the fuck down in our business right now. With the uh, writer strike going, the looming SAG strike, and the Directors Guild strike that is going to put a halt on the film business through August at this point. Um, So yeah, lots of uh, interesting stuff on the horizon when it comes to that, and we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But I wanted to come on here and, you know, just give a big shout out to (laughs) all of our new fans from India. So 12KM... My film, 12 Cam, for those of you who are new listeners of the show, I've made a movie. It is uh, called 12 Kilometers. It is based on a Russian drill team in the 1980s that dug the deepest hole known to man. And they dredge up something truly terrifying. Um, This movie uh, went viral in November of 2022, last year. um, And it has gone viral five times since. (laughs) Uh, It has been pretty fucking crazy, man. And this week, we just went viral um, in India. So I I was getting to the end of my DMs. Finally, it took me almost a year to start to cross over into the final stages of answering all those DMs from November. And uh, it just blew up again. So... Those of you who have been patiently waiting for me to answer your DMs, I highly suggest you just message me again to put yourself higher on the queue Um, because I am waking up early and spending about three hours in the morning just going through and responding to hundreds of uh, direct messages trying to stay on top of it. So if you don't want your stuff to be even further buried in the queue, I would just re-message me. And that should uh, give you better chances. Um, So, yeah, big shout out to India, man. Um, I love you guys. Uh, The fans are are (laughs) rabid. And uh, they have been making videos. They have been doing posts. Um, Here's the thing, too. And I've been saying this to everybody that has been uh, DMing me. Uh, If you make... A video. So all you have to do is film yourself and talk about your viewing experience for 12KM. Did you like it? Did you hate it? Either way, it's fine. I will repost the video if you do a good job. Um, And uh, here's what's fascinating. You might go viral if you do that. Um, The folks that have been going viral lately um, don't have a lot of followers, man. So it isn't like a numbers game. Uh, it's if you do a great video and I think what the algorithm is registering is if you do something that is highly energetic and exciting with some cuts in it, 
um, you've got a good chance of going viral if you do uh, your own video on 12KM. Um, it's crazy, man. I, I don't understand why it continues to happen. I think it's just because everybody likes to get involved with it. Uh, there's something interesting about having to give me your three favorite horror movies. Um, not only do people dig this, but for some reason the algorithm really registers with it. So uh, if you decide to make a video, you never know. Your stuff could go viral. Like uh, the first video that was done by Big Vic, um, he had some followers, but not a ton of followers, dude. And his his video, uh, I think it's over 5 million views at this point putting him pretty high up there. Um, so it's pretty crazy, man. Uh, let's see, what else is going on? So let's talk a little bit about uh, 12Cam for some of the new listeners, some of the new folks that are coming in, some of the new people that are coming over to the podcast after watching the movie, looking for more answers. I do have a lot of other episodes. So if you go back through our queue, you'll find... Uh, that we've had actors from 12Cam on the show. Um, I've done a deep conversation about, um, you know, where the idea for 12Cam came from. Um, so you'll find that further back in the queue. But I'll give you guys sort of like a brief summary. So many of you have been asking, is this the full movie? Because it's only 27 minutes long, I think, is what the runtime for the film is. So here's, here's the deal. This version of the movie was created as a proof of concept. So proof of concept film is something that a director, a young director, or a director that hasn't done a feature before should put together when they send out a script to studios or to production companies um, because it better helps my chances of getting hired as a director. It also helps the person uh, that is reading the script to understand the tone that I would set for the film, right? And there's no better way to do that than to actually make a movie so that they watch that first, they get excited about the idea of reading a script, and then when they read that script, they go, oh, I know how Mike would film this because I've seen him do it already, right? So it's a really good selling piece to get a feature film made. Now, many of you have asked, why isn't... This version that I sent around longer, why isn't it a feature version of it? Honestly, dude, it's just money. It's money. It's money and resources to do it. Like, the short film cost me some cash to make. Um, and if I had enough funds when I started out, and I wish I did because I love that cast. I love everything that we did for that short film. If I had the funds, I would have made it longer. I would have made it an hour and a half. Um, but uh, we didn't. So we did the best that we could with the resources that we had at that moment. Now, many of you want the story to continue. Many of you want this to become a bigger piece. Well, here's the good news. The good news is that this short film um, went out to uh, a bunch of production companies in Hollywood. We ended up at Ridley Scott's company. They really liked this movie. And so right now, this film is being developed by Ridley Scott's company with me to direct it, which is super cool. Um, but the budget, this is how Hollywood works, man. The budget for the feature version of this is a little bit higher than they want to give a first-time director, right? And so what I'm working on first is a smaller film. So probably a film that's about $2 million and under. And we've got two or three of those in 
development right now. So all that stuff is very exciting. I do one of the smaller films first, then we do a longer version of 12KM. It's very cool, um, but everything's on hold right now because of the writer's strike. You know what I mean? No one's allowed to produce anything. No one's allowed to do anything, you know? The good news is, is that the feature version of 12KM um, is written by my good buddy and collaborator, Will Simmons. Now, Will Simmons is a phenomenal writer. He's a, um, you know, a Hollywood screenplay writer. He has been working on scripts for some of the biggest directors in our genre and in the business. I don't know if I'm allowed to drop, name drop who he's working with right now. But rest assured, you've seen their movies before. <laughs> the thing I like about Will is that he is a full-time screenwriter and he has uh, a love for the genre the way I have a love for the genre. He's one of the easiest collaborations that I've ever had in my career. Um, and the two of us have come up with like oof, so many good, good ideas. So we're just at that tipping point where hopefully one of these things breaks and once it does, you guys are going to see a lot of projects from us. Uh, and then there'll be those people that didn't know anything about us prior to it. And they'll go, you guys came out of nowhere. It was an overnight success. <laughs> yeah, it's like 15 fucking years. Um, so yeah, uh, those of you who have questions about what 12CAM means and what the ending of 12CAM means, um, I don't want to answer all those questions for you because... The feature version will do, uh, will give you a lot of those answers. Um, but there's also something really nice. I don't think you guys would like this movie as much if I answered all these questions. There's something really nice about leaving things open-ended for you to try to figure out on your own because then you are more involved with the film, right? Do you guys like to be involved with the film that way? I, I feel like there's too much content out there right now that gives us the answers to everything. And when you start to hear these answers, many of these answers are pretty fucking lame. You know what I mean? Like, think about all the different TV shows you watch. Think about the different movies you watch where they just sort of force feed you the reasons for things, right? Like, they do a flashback. Turns out this part, this person has an alcohol problem. Turns out this is happening. You know what I mean? You've heard these, uh, you know, reasons for action a hundred different times. You know what I mean? And there's something interesting about uh, how in real life, if you find yourself in a horrific situation, you don't know the answers to it. You don't know where the creature comes from. You don't understand these things. And it makes it even scarier. You know what I mean? Um, but I will tackle a few things. The theory in the short film is that Buried within the planet, there is an ancient evil. Now, in the core, so as they dig down to 12 kilometers, our idea was that down there, there is an ocean of this evil oil, this black oil that's down there. And this evil oil has the ability to consume you. It has the ability to take over your body, take over your mind, and consume you. Um, and it loves to do so. It's a very sinister entity. It enjoys it. You taste better if you're scared. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, what it has been doing, what it has the ability to do, is once it dries out and turns into a dust form, 
Um, it can go airborne. It can actually, um, you know, travel through, you know, the hole that they've dug, go up. And as you breathe it in, and you'll see that in the short film, a lot of folks breathing in the dust, breathing in the dust particles, um, it will then go in and infect itself in your brain. And it has the ability to influence you in that form because it's still pretty weak. It's only in the dust form. Um, so it can whisper to you in your sleep. Um, it could suggest things to you. It takes over your inner voice. Um, and it really has the most power in that form when you're tired or if you're stressed out. Then you could be manipulated by it. And uh, if you watch the film, we don't explicitly say that in the film, but if you watch the film, you'll see all of the workers and the drillers that are exhausted being influenced by this creature, especially the professor, very much influenced by this creature. And <clears throat> what we were trying to establish with the lowering of the microphones down into the hole is that in the hole itself, the creature... Uh, in its largest form, uh, creates this sound, this certain frequency that keeps it in a liquid form. And so once they lower the microphone down in that hole and they release the noise that uh, is down in the base of 12 kilometers, all of the dust particles that exist um, on the surface are then exposed to that frequency and they become the fluid form, which becomes stronger. Right, and that's how all the guys get. You, you'll see. If you, I don't want to give away too much because many of you haven't seen the movie, so I should have said spoiler alert at the beginning of this. <laughs> I blame it on jet lag that I didn't. <laughs> I'll put it in the title. Um, so, yeah, man. Hopefully that gives you guys a bit more insight. But I'm not gonna give you all the answers, right, man? Because it's not fun if you do that. And the, if anything, I hope that you guys uh, see my truest intention with why I ask you guys to send me your three favorite horror movies, why I want you to be involved and engaged with this, um, because I feel like most of the content that we consume right now is just fast food, right? It's just, you know, passive, where you go, oh, what do I do? I click on a link and I kind of watch this and I get halfway through and... I'm going to go get some food, or maybe I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'm not going to finish watching this piece all in one run. I think that in this format, with you guys being completely connected to the project and to be you know, connected with me, um, there's a lot more respect that goes into the viewing experience, but also I feel like I'm getting the same kind of experience that I would get if we screened it together in a space. You know what I mean? So... I hope you enjoy this. I hope you guys like this. Let me know if you like this stuff. Let me know what you think about the theory of the creature. You know, send me some messages on Instagram uh, and tell me what you think. And those of you who um, have gotten messages from me, um, when you do send me DMs, you end up in the different folder. So many of the fans of the show are like, well, look, if we send you DMs, we're just going to get lost in the sea of messages. No, no, no. The way that Instagram works is that the folks that I've engaged with already, you guys will go into my uh, primary folder. So I see those messages first. 
all the people that are writing to me to see 12 Kim, especially if we don't follow each other, they end up in the third folder, which is, I, I can't even remember what it's called, like the hidden folder. And that thing is loaded with thousands and thousands of DMs. <laughs> so a little insider baseball on how the message system works. So if you're a fan of the show, if you like it, you'll I'll see your messages first. Um, big shout out to the fans that picked up t-shirts, man. Uh, you guys, the super fans, you guys got t-shirts and super fan pins. Um, if you did get one, send me a picture. Send me a picture of you and your shirt and your pin and I'll post it. Um, but uh, big shout out to you guys. I love you guys. Thank you so much for continuing to support the show. This year, I think I'm going to do another run of t-shirts. I, I think I'm going to do um, a new storyboard shirt because you guys seem to like those. And I might do a storyboard shirt based upon the newest film. Um, and many of you have been asking, is there another film? What is your next project? So there's a, two films that you guys haven't seen yet. There's a film called Who's There, which I may be releasing in the next few months. And then the most recent film I did uh, is a film called Come Home, starring Lance Williams. That one's awesome. I will say that the newest one is the best by far. It is like... Everything that is great about 12 Cam, everything that is great is about who's there, all rolled into just a beautifully refined piece. Um, there have been a select few of you who have been uh, part of the test screen audience for that. Um, and I've sent out links and got um, just stellar feedback on that stuff. Um, I'm excited. It, it, one of the things that was really great about getting feedback on the new piece was um, the books by Judith Weston. You, if you guys don't know who Judith Weston is, you should go back and listen to the episodes. I forget what number it is. It's probably about 100 episodes back in the queue. Um, but Judith Weston um, is an uh, actor coach and uh, director coach, and she published these books, Directing for Actors. And uh, I read them during the pandemic, and they kind of blew my mind. Really changed the way that I prep my scripts and that I work with actors. Um, and both Lance and I had read those books, and so I put a lot of those new techniques uh, to work on this new film, um, Come Home. And my God, it's so much better. <laughs> like, it's so much better. And you'll see the character development and the change in character development when you guys finally see this film. Um, and I was so happy because I was able to send the short over to Judith and she watched it and she gave me her feedback and she loved it too. So it was like this really fun circle of like uh, finding the book during the pandemic, contacting Judith and having her on the show and sort of talking about that, to studying her methods, to making it work to doing an entire piece with it and then being able to show it back to Judith at the end. Um, it's fun how this business works like that. Uh, and uh, I can't wait for you guys to see it. Now that one, I'm not going to be able to drop online for a while now because I just submitted it to film festivals. And so we submitted it to some of the biggest festivals, the biggest genre festivals. Fingers crossed that we get in. And if we do get in and it's in your hometown, you should come watch it with us. Um, and 
I just put this out there to the festivals. Hopefully, if we get into these places, um, we'll also do podcasts at the festivals and we'll, we'll make it into an event if we go do that. Um, our chances are better than they were with 12 Cam. I definitely uh, learned my lessons, even though... Here's a tip for you young filmmakers. Even though when you submit short films to a festival, they say that anything, most festivals say, that anything under 45 minutes is considered a short film. Um, when I submitted 12KM, it was only 27 minutes, but I didn't get into festivals because they considered it too long. And I was like, well, what do you mean it's too long? You guys literally write on your website that you'll take stuff up to 45 minutes. And according to festival programmers, uh, they don't like to, to program shorts that long because typically they're putting a shorts program together that's about 60 minutes. So if they take a 27 or 30 minute short, they're losing um, the space to program two other short films at least. You know what I mean? So I get it, it makes sense. So the new one is definitely shorter. The new film, uh, Come Home, is under 15 minutes but it's a solid 15 minutes. Um, so I think we have a better chance of being programmed with it. Um, so fingers fucking crossed. Uh, most of those festivals don't let us know if we got entry until the summer, and then a lot of those festivals don't happen until September. So it will be a little bit of a wait before you guys can see anything from the new film. Um, but I think I'm going to try to cut a teaser when I get back. To California, so maybe I'll drop a teaser for you guys and uh, put that out there. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about Hollywood, right? What's going on with the strikes right now? Um, we are pushing into what is it like week two or week three of the writer's strike? Um, so many people have been out picketing, a lot of my friends are out there picketing in front of the studios. Um, they are battling for uh, more rights uh, as a writer, more rights as a creator uh, to, to be better compensated for their work. Um, look, there are a lot of details to uh, why the writer strike is happening, but let's sort of approach the larger de the the larger issue here. I think it ultimately just comes down to the fact that you know, there needs to be a respect um, for the folks that are working for you and an understanding on how these people can make a living, an understanding on how these people can survive. And I think most of the press that gets put out there to the general public when it comes to directors or writers or actors are, you know, I, I kind of want to say propaganda for the creme de la creme. You know what I mean? Like the people at the top of the system that, you know, just signed a huge deal or someone that got paid a million dollars to write a screenplay or something like that. And look, that's like the 1% of everybody that works in this business. Most people that work in this business are doing the grind, man. They're doing the hard grind. They're getting paid day rates. They're getting paid uh, the bare minimum to do intense intense work and when you talk about writing writing is one of the most intense jobs in our industry because it requires so much time and energy so much brain power uh, for you to 
just come up with a bad script or a draft, right? For you to sort of come up with an original idea that is interesting and inspiring and flushed out characters, and then you, you deliver all this on the page, and then that then gets run through whatever sort of like reading, processing, you know, uh, you know, uh, producer notes, uh, studio notes, just sort of tearing apart um, all that hard work and then rewrites and redrafts. It's insanity, man. And I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I've had a lot of friends that are writers and I have nothing but sympathy <laughs> for that job, man. And to be in a situation as a writer where you get stuck in some bullshit contract deal um, where you're not allowed to work for other shows, um, you get uh, false promises of like, hey, look, we know that uh, normally you would get paid this much for the script, but we'll give you part of the profit shares. It's bullshit, man. It's really a grift. Hollywood continues to be a grift. It has always been one. But it continues to be so. And I think there hits this point where, especially when these companies are publicly traded and everything's about profits, 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 they'll use every angle possible um, to get the most out of uh, creatives, man. And it's an interesting thing. It's like a big old can of worms is, as you sort of pull this lid off and you look at how uh, terribly writers have been treated and now we get into these other unions that are now going to go on strike, man. And, and one of the most, <laughs> get ready for it, when you start to talk about SAG, you start to talk about actors and how actors are treated. I mean, <laughs> actors, just look at, look at um, you know, when they call you in for auditions, man, as an actor. It's, it's fucking cattle call time, Right? It really is. Um, so, I, I, like, here, here's the thing. These strikes, I think, are important to make sure that the, our business, these jobs, are going to be able to uh, exist, really, right? Because if uh, you don't want this to go into some sort of slave labor situation... And I, I know that sounds extreme, but it's not, dude. It's the truth with any of this stuff. And if you've worked in this business at any level, if you've worked in this business as a PA, if you've worked in this business as a video editor, if you've worked in this business as an actor, you know that it's almost expected for you to do slave labor in this business. When you come into this job, it's like you're going to be working for free. You're going to work as a PA. You're going to be doing 15 hours a day, you're not going to get any sleep, you're going to get into car crashes as you drive home on the road, um, but that's part of the job, right? As an actor, it's like how many different audition tapes, how many different reads do you do, how many different uh, pitches do you do, and you don't get paid for that time, and you're working hard. That's your job at that time. You're physically showing up to do uh, a performance for people in casting sessions. How much time and preparation goes into that? You're not paid for any of that. I mean, and we'll change, you know, categories a bit here. Let's talk about if you're writing pitches or if you're uh, in the commercial world or in the music video world and you're writing pitches and you're putting together treatments and these ideas and you're required to spend weeks and weeks 
hunting for images and writing out ideas and practicing your pitch and then showing up into a room, you don't get paid for any of that. None of that. That's all hard work. And I get it. I know that there's an argument like, hey, man, look, you know, we don't have tons of money and oftentimes... You know, we need to put things together that we're, put, that we're pitching to a studio. And so you have to do the hard work and trust in us that we can try to get it made. I, I, I get all that stuff. But I think what it comes down to more than anything else is it, it, it really needs to be an awareness of how much work and energy is actually put in on every level of this thing. And then a reminder that the The folks that are doing this are human beings that are doing this legwork, that are doing all this hard work and hard labor that's going into this, that is then going to make you content, that is then going to make you ass loads of money. You know what I mean? And so when it comes down to sharing the profits, when it comes down to releasing the numbers for things and, and giving folks an understanding of how successful things are, and then paying for that success, supporting the people that helped you make those billions of fucking dollars. You know what I mean? It's a respect thing more than anything else. And I think most people just don't feel respected. And we've seen this, right? We saw this with Rust and all the controversy around Alec Baldwin and the gunplay and um, the larger argument there I think got pushed into the... I don't want to talk too much about it because it's very controversial, but I think Alec Baldwin took the brunt of that. But the true the true enemy in that situation is being abused by these smaller distributors, by these smaller production companies, right? It's the abuse of not having enough money, not having enough funds to have a true armor on set, not having enough funds uh, for people to be working... Uh, at hours that uh, they shouldn't be exhausted. Like, this has been a problem through the independent scene for years. It's a problem through major Hollywood scene for years. I've got friends that work on crews as grips and gaffers, as, uh, you know, script supervisors, as PAs, um, and they are working ridiculous hours, right? 15 hours, 16 hours, exhausted on set, And one would argue that they're being compensated for it, right? There are rules in place where you get meal penalties and overtime and overages. Um, And there is an argument for many of those uh, workers who are used to, you know, breaking their backs and putting themselves in dangerous situations and their paychecks being larger because of it. uh, Now understanding that once they argue for better hours and uh, better rules to be in place that their paychecks will be smaller because they're not getting compensated for all that dangerous time. You know, it's it's a double-edged sword, man. You know, I was talking to my buddy who's an assistant director about this, and he said that, you know, many folks need to understand that they can't get everything when it comes down to these strikes and to the demands that many of these folks have. Um, and I agree with him on that. I think that what happens... Uh, with a lot of these unions is they're not very organized. And each and every person within that union has their gripes, right? And many of their gripes are kind of unrealistic, you know? Like there isn't a blank check somewhere that can be written to you 
Like, hey, we want less hours, but we also want the same money that we were making when we were getting all the hazard pay. It's like, I don't know if it still works that way. You know what I mean? So strikes in these negotiations are often interesting um, because you're sort of sorting through. (laughs) To me, it feels like those town hall meetings. You know what I mean? Where they set up a town hall meeting for something really important and then you have like, You've got that scraggly old neighbor with a house and a lawn that's never been mowed, and he comes out and he starts like, <laughs> he starts ranting about like cell phone towers. You know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of that um, in there, but I don't know. I'm ranting here. The main, <laughs> the main, the main goal with all this stuff should be treat us like human beings. Treat us like human beings. Come on, man. Like, you can't make record-breaking profits without fucking over people. And that's the big problem, right? At the end of the day, how much is enough? How much money is enough for you? And I'm not just, you know, putting that question out there to the CEOs and the owners of of all these different companies. I'm putting that, that question out there to you. Right? Because each and every person, the people at the bottom, wish they were the people at the top. And so many people at the bottom still have the same mentality of the people at the top, where if I was in a position like that, I'd take the money, man. You know? At what point is enough enough? You know? It's a larger question. But uh, anyway, let me see. My buddy, uh, Daniel Friedman, who is on the show... Uh, our screenwriter and uh, comic book uh, writer Daniel Friedman. Go back and check out the episode. He's really great. He sent me this great article called Time to Break Up Hollywood. Uh, let me see if I can find... Maybe I can get this guy on the show. Written by Richard Rushfield. Um, Time to Break Up Hollywood. Hollywood is trapped in a death spiral with streaming giants struggling to profit uh, while smothering the industry itself. Finally, the writer stood up, but will it be enough by Matt Stoller? I'm sorry, Matt Stoller wrote this. Um, It's an interesting article. I'll try to post it um, underneath today's episode. It's an email form, but I'm sure I could find it online. Um, But it really sort of talks about all of the games that have been happening um, for the since the '90s, um, all of these sort of uh, new laws that have been passed, and, and basically enabling these giant companies to be able to gobble up uh, distributors. Uh, there was rules in place at one point where you couldn't be um, someone that created content and distributed content at the same time. It became a monopoly. A lot of that stuff has been shut down and we are seeing the results of this. I mean, at one point in time, you know, Disney couldn't own everything, you know, and now they do. And they put such a good spin on it. We're all like, yay, fucking Disney owns everything. Well, it doesn't really help us. Definitely doesn't help the independent people. Um, let's see here. Let's see if I can read you a couple of headlines from this. Let's see. Oh, this guy, here's a, here's a quick little blurb. Netflix model was an attack on the bargain between creators and studios 
at the heart of the industry. The bargain is that everyone who makes movies or shows, production houses, studios, writers, actors or directors split the profits from an individual piece of content, profits generated by selling movies or shows uh, into actual markets. Producers, for instance, often retained the intellectual property of a show and licensed it. Uh, traditional labor compensation packages known as residuals are based on the theatrical releases or what ratings TV shows achieved when they're broadcast. Additionally, both categories might qualify for additional compensation through syndication or DVD sales or foreign market sales and sometimes streaming. Uh, it's why the cast of Friends is still making millions of dollars even today. When Netflix sought to fully integrate the production and distribution, this bargain broke down because there are no markets or prices used to value anything. Netflix paid creators an upfront fee uh, and then that content was on Netflix with no opportunity to syndicate or sell anywhere else. Beyond breaking down price signals, Netflix wouldn't even tell creators how their shows did in terms of the ratings. It also refused to allow American production houses to retain their IP, right? Uh, intellectual property, for those of you who aren't keeping up. Other studios copied Netflix, uh, appending the labor model for content. Um, no one knew what anything was worth. Uh, let's see, the lack of marketing signals screwed up the industry because markets, as it turns out, have an important function in Hollywood. They represent a feedback loop to the studios telling executives the, prefer the preferences of the audience based on whether the audience or advertisers are willing to pay. Uh, the tacky way used to understand this dynamic uh, is that when a movie did well at the box office, other studios would often copy that kind of movie. We've seen this before. In hopes of appealing to a larger audience who saw the original, uh, but happens when you get distribution for mid-market movies because few theater chains owners didn't want it. What happens when there are no TV ratings because it's all streamed? What happens when, as it happens during the pandemic, there is no box office? Obviously, at some level, people are, are still paying money in the form of subscription fees, but decisions for what to make happen about individual pieces of content are difficult without this feedback from the audience. Uh, a creative executive can't, after all, greenlight a streaming service. They can only greenlight a movie or a TV show. So ultimately, that's the big thing that we're dealing with. Let's see. I'm trying to see if I can find some out. This is a great article. I'll have to send this out to you guys. Um, it's fascinating to read about all the different laws that were passed that enable these giant chains uh, to consolidate everything. And so this works for Netflix. Like it, when Netflix began, Netflix began as obviously, as you guys know, it's sort of a DVD distribution service. And they were combating um, the issues that everybody had with Blockbuster, right? Blockbuster was making all of its money off the late fees um, and the fact that you had to like leave the house and return your DVDs on time or it was going to cost you money. And Netflix sort of slid in there and said, hey, guess what? You can keep this thing for as long as you fucking want. And they shipped it out to you, right? So that basically destroyed the entire fucking uh, 
home video market. So that was done. And then um, smartly, what Netflix was doing is they saw the future and said, hey, look, this stuff needs to be digitized and streamed online. And as usual, same thing happened in the music business when stuff went digital. Um, these larger companies are like, eh, let's see what happens. And so now Netflix had the ability to stream all of these studios' content, all of this content from the studios. And they basically single-handedly sort of destroyed all these distribution markets, right? And so then the studios, you know, snapped too, and they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys uh, are basically building a monopoly here. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to pull back our rights because they have the rights to all these movies. We're going to pull back our rights. You guys can't show our stuff. And Netflix, once again, was like, hey, man, we need to jump on this right away. We need to make our own content. We need to own all of that content, own all the rights to that content so that we never have people pulling the rights on our shit. Um, and then that's where it all went downhill, man. So I don't know, man. It's interesting. I, it'll be interesting to see how we recover from this because it's true. All that time and energy, when you see someone get paid big bucks, when you finally see an actor get paid massive money, or if you see a director get paid big bucks. And here's a great example. The guy who directed Squid Games made nothing. <laughs> he barely made any cash. And uh, I saw a quote from him. He said that that was only supposed to be one season. Uh, he had no idea for what the second season would be, but the only reason why he's doing the second season is that he can now try to negotiate a larger upfront fee to help pay for all the money that he didn't make on the first season. You know what I mean? These are the games that are played with this. And then the question is, is like, you know, how well did Squid Games actually do? Right? Is it actually doing well? Because uh, there's a lot of rumors out there that it's not, that Netflix isn't doing as well as they say that they're doing. Um... And uh, that a lot of it is bullshit. <laughs> so who the fuck knows, man? Really? You know? So, uh, like I said, I'll send this article out there, man. I just sort of read you guys some uh, brief stuff. But see if you can look for it right now. So go on Google, type in Time to Break Up Hollywood. Uh, Matt Stoller wrote it. May 15th is when this article came out. Um, and it's a good one. To read. Uh, look, as we push into the uh, strikes and the slowing down of what's happening right now, um, let me try to settle your nerves because I, I, I was just talking to uh, some rental houses. There's a lot going on right now. A lot of the big rental houses are shutting up shop. A lot of people are laying, getting laid off in these situations. The business is not going to die. It's not going to go anywhere. This is just negotiations, right? That's what this is. Um, I've heard from some folks that uh, uh, a lot of the streamers are stretching this out until August because they want contracts to run up with people that they no longer want to do shows with. There's a lot of sleazy negotiation stuff going on behind the scenes. Um, but know this. The streamers are going to need content. All these places are going to need content. Everybody's going to stop work. So 
like it did with the pandemic, it's just going to blow up again. Like as soon as the strikes are over, it's just going to blow the fuck up and work's going to be needed. Content's going to be needed. So what you might want to consider doing, and here's a little insider tip, what you might want to consider doing is making some stuff. As you go into the strike, as you go into this dry period that's going to last through August, maybe you should do what we did during the pandemic. Sort of look at what it is that you make. This is now your opportunity and chance to create things. Make some proof of concept pieces. Put some stuff together. This is a great opportunity for you to show up once the strike ends with new work, right? And to be at the forefront because there's going to be a lot of people that are looking for new, new talent, man. I'm telling you. And here's another little tip. People that own gear, people that own rental houses, their stuff is just going to be sitting on the shelf, so you can go in and negotiate, right? Like, what can you do to help them get more work? Could you do a piece? Do you have a good social media following? Could you do a piece and then advertise for them? They may be willing to give you gear, very discounted or for free. You know what I mean? So it's a great opportunity to make something new right now. Pretty crazy. Think about it in a positive way. Um, and then, uh, you know, there was a, an old saying that like some of the most successful companies when shit got bad and when storms showed up, they just rethought the way they did things and, uh, they didn't panic. And then at the back end of that storm, they end up being the leaders of the industry, you know, look at Nike, look at all those different places. So consider it as, uh, we, as things dry up a little bit. Because it's going to get a little hairy. You know what I mean? Hopefully you stack some of your nuts. And you've got uh, some money in the bank. Um, but anyway. Love you guys. Love everybody that's listening to the show. Thanks for checking in. Um, more episodes on the way. I'm going to try to do some episodes here. Uh, so next week I brought some recording equipment. Next week I'll probably record here and do some stuff. Hope you guys liked the barbecue episode this week. Uh, Bobby and I have been chatting all week. He's super excited. A lot of you have been going over and checking out his stuff. Go get some of his food. I know he's going to be uh, hitting the breweries this weekend. So uh, go check out overall underscore barbecue. If you're in Los Angeles, go get some of his food. and You can taste what we ranted about on the episode. Uh, love you, Bobby. Love the work that you do. Love the food that you do. Um, and that's it, man. I'm going to let everybody go because uh, I've got a full day ahead of me here. Um, thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for supporting me. And uh, I'll be back next Tuesday with something new.